Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, And on today's episode, I am very fortunate to have four pretty remarkable physical therapists who also happen to be pelvic health specialists on to discuss the recent Supreme Court ruling in the Dobbs case that overturned the landmark ruling of Roe versus Wade. How will this reversal of Roe v. Wade affect the patients that we may see on a regular basis in all facets of the physical therapy world? So to help have this discussion, I am very excited to welcome onto the podcast Dr. Rebecca Seagraves and Dr. Abby Bales, and to welcome back to the podcast Dr. Sandy Hilton and Dr. Sarah Haig. So regardless of where you fall on this decision, it is important that the physical therapy world be prepared to care for these patients. So I want to thank all four of these remarkable physical therapists for coming on to the podcast. Once the podcast starts, they will talk a little bit more about themselves, and then we will get right into our discussion. So thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And thanks to Abby, Rebecca, Sandy, and Sarah. Hi, my name is Rebecca Seagraves. I'm a private practice pelvic health therapist who provides hospital-based and home-based pelvic health services. And I teach occupational and physical therapists to provide their services earlier in the hospital so that women don't have to suffer. Perfect. Sarah, go ahead. I am Sarah Haig, and I'm a physical therapist at Entropy Physiotherapy in Chicago, and I'm also assistant professor um, in a, at a university where I do get to teach a variety of healthcare providers. Perfect. Abby, go ahead. My name is Abby Bales. I am a physical therapist. I specialize in pelvic health for the pregnant and postpartum athlete. I have my practice in New York City called Reform Physical Therapy, and I do in-home visits, and I have a small clinic location. Perfect. And Sandy, go ahead. Sandy Hilton. I'm a pelvic health physical therapist. I'm currently in Chicago with Sarah at Entropy, uh, and I'm in Chicago and online because we can see people for consultations wherever they are, and we may be needing to do more of that. So the first question I have for all of you lovely ladies is... How will the recent Supreme Court ruling in the Dobbs case, which was overturning Roe v. Wade, how is that going to affect people who give birth that we see in our clinics, in the hospital setting, in an outpatient setting, in a home setting? So let's start with uh, Sarah. Go ahead. I'll start with you, and then we'll just kind of go around. And, and, and also feel free to chime in and, and, you know, the conversation as you see fit. Go ahead. Um, that's such a big question and I get to go first. Um, so the question was, how, how is this decision going to affect people who give birth? 
And I would say it just, it affects everyone in, in kind of different ways. Um, Cause I would say what this will undoubtedly do is result in us seeing people who didn't want to give birth. Um, and, and, and I think, um, you know, the effects of that are gonna be far reaching and, and that we, I think maybe we in this little group um, can ha have uh, an idea of, of the vastness of this decision, but I think that even we will be surprised at what happens. Um, I think that um, how it will affect people who give birth, gosh, I'm kind of speechless because there's so many different ways. Um, but when we're looking at that person in front of us, whatever they need to do or whatever they need assistance with after giving birth, um, we're going to have to just amplify exponentially um, our consideration for where they are and how they felt going into the birth, how they got pregnant in the first place, and um, and kind of how they see themselves going forward. Uh, we talk about treating women in the fourth trimester and it's I mean I'm in that fourth trimester myself and I can tell you that um, it would be harder to ask for help um, and and I'm really fortunate that I that I have that I do have support and that I do have the ability to seek help um, I have a million great friends that I can reach out to for help but I'm just um, how, the, how it's gonna affect the women. I would say I'm scared, but it's not about me. I'm, I'm very concerned for all the women who won't be able to access the care that they, that they need. Yeah, Sandy, go ahead. What do you think? How do you feel this decision will affect people who can give birth, especially as they come to see physical therapists, whether that be during pregnancy, as Sarah just said, the fourth trimester, or perhaps after a procedure or abortion that maybe didn't go well because it wasn't safe. Yeah, the, so I work a, a lot with pain. Um, one of my concerns is uh, <laughs> what, what is the future gonna hold for some people who did not want to be pregnant, not out of some sort of convenience or concern for finances, both of which, uh, you know, your spot in life determines whether or not you have the, the ability to raise another person at that moment. So there are individual decisions that people should make, in my opinion. But also there's the, if something happens to you that you did not give permission to happen, and then you are dealing with the consequences in this instance, pregnancy, and you happen to have back pain or have hip pain, or have a, a, a chronic condition or a pelvic pain history where you did not want to be pregnant, how's that gonna affect the pain and the dysfunction that you were, you were already happening? And will it sensitize people to worse outcomes and recovery afterwards? Because this is a, you know, there's a perceived injustice scale. I gonna pull that back out. I uh, hadn't been using it very often in the clinic, just didn't seem to change the course of care. But I think that when I'm working with the people pre, um, post, <laughs> during pregnancy, 
I think I'm going to pull my perceived injustice scale back out and see if that might be a nice way to find out if I need to hook someone up to a counselor, a financial counselor, a, a psychologist, a sexual therapist, anyone who might be able to support this person. Because we already don't have good support systems for pregnancy. I just am astounded at, at how much, how what a bad choice it is to add more need to a system that isn't currently handling the demand. I know we're going to need to get creative because these people will need help. Um, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm a little awestruck at the possible hot mess we're going to walk into. Yeah, and Abby, you had mentioned uh, before we uh, started recording um, about you know, some of the folks that you see that may have a history of different kinds of trauma and how that may affect their abilities or to kind of wrap their head around being pregnant and then being forced to give birth because now they don't have any alternative. So how do you feel like that's going to play out in the physical therapy world? if they even get to physical therapy, if they even get to a pelvic health therapist. Yeah, that's, that's a, one of the things that I was, I was thinking about as everyone was chiming in was we really are just at the precipice in our niche of our profession where people who give birth are seeking or even hearing about pelvic health and postpartum care, pregnancy care. They're just barely hearing about it. And my, I have, you know, a concern, a very deep concern that these people will go into hiding if they have had an abortion in the past, because are we obligated to report that? And what is the statute of limitations on that? and the shame that they might feel for having had an abortion or having had give birth and didn't want to. And the trauma that my patients who have, for the most part, not everyone who have wanted pregnancies that either the birth is traumatic, the pregnancy is traumatic, they get to a successful delivery or they have a loss um, during the pregnancy the trauma that they are experiencing. And for the most part, I'm seeing adults and I cannot comprehend children because it's, there's going to be a lot of children who are forced to give birth or who are having unsafe abortions and the trauma that they're going to experience and how how much it takes for a person who has sexual trauma or birth trauma to get to my clinic how these young people, how these people who feel that shame, I don't know how they're going to get to me or any of us, except for a real team-based approach with pediatricians, with hospitals, with um, OBGYNs, with urogynecologists, with people who might see them first before us. I just don't know how they get to us to be able to treat and help treat that trauma. And like Sandy said, that pelvic pain, that might be a result of the trauma if, if it's unwanted 
sexual intercourse. I just don't know how we get to them. And that is something that we struggle with now with, for the most part, wanted pregnancies. And I, I don't know how we get there. And, and I don't think we're prepared as a profession for that. I think the advocacy for getting ourselves into pediatricians' offices, into, into family medicine offices, is going to be so crucial in getting to these patients. Um, but there aren't enough of us. We are not prepared. And our insurance-based system is not ready to handle the far-reaching consequences of forced birth at a young age and botched abortions. It is not ready to handle that. Rebecca, go ahead. I'm curious to hear your thoughts around this because of your work in acute care systems. Absolutely. I believe that I'm beyond the argument of whether this is right or whether this is wrong. I think that as a profession, we're going to have to quickly uh, change to a mindset of, can we be prepared enough to handle what Abby was saying, the amount of uh, trauma, uh, the amount of uh, uh, mental health, I think, um, comes to mind uh, when, when someone's autonomy is taken away from them in any regard. Um, I was very vocal as to how dangerous it was to uh, force, you know, um, mandates on people even last year. And now here we are. We're at a, a, a point in our profession where we have to now separate our own personal beliefs and be committed to the oath of doing no further harm because this will result in harm. Having treated uh, individuals after an unplanned cesarean section or a cesarean hysterectomy because of severe blood loss, they had no choice in those procedures and they had no choice in the kind of recovery or rehabilitation they would get. I had to fight and advocate um, for our services, physical and occupational therapy services to be offered to individuals. So when you're looking someone in the eye who has lost autonomy over their body, has lost choice, has gone through trauma, that changes you. It changes me really as a profession, even on this, uh, a professional, even on this issue. I'm now, pivoting as quickly as I can to say, do I have the skills that's going to be needed to address um, maybe hemorrhage events from an unsafe abortion that's uh, performed? Uh, maybe the mental health of having to travel across state lines so that you can find a provider that will treat you. Maybe the, um, you know, the, the shame around, you know, even finding, well, you know, is there a safe space for me to be treated uh, for my pelvic health trauma from, you know, maybe needing to carry this pregnancy longer than, than I would have wanted to. I, there's, there's so much around this that we really have to start looking at um, with a clinical eye, with a very empathetic or sympathetic eye um, as pelvic health therapists, because of the fact that there's so few of us. And because now we're um, in a scenario where there will be more people will be needing services, but not knowing who to turn to. So my, my biggest hope from this conversation and many more that we'll have is that there's somehow uh, going to be a way to designate ourselves as a safe space for anyone, no matter what choice they've made for their body, period. 
I, I'm I'm really done with being um, on one end of the spectrum with this. I'm I'm a professional that doesn't have that um, opportunity to just um, you know be extreme on this. I advocate for the person and for their choice over their body. Period. I think we need to, and that is just beautifully, beautifully said. The, um, the the getting getting some small systemic procedures in place in in the communities we live in is most likely the first step. Is reach out to the pediatricians and the chiropractors and the massage therapists and the trainers and the school athletic trainers and whoever you you find that can have a connection with people and let them know on an individual basis. So like, how do you, how do you tell people, Hey, I'm a trustworthy clinic to come to it, not usually by writing it on your website, but if you can make connections in your community and be a trusted provider, that's going to go further. I suspect um, I, I'm assuming there's going to be a fair bit of mistrust. Um, and we have to earn it once it's lost, we got to earn it back. So yeah, I, I like the, the proactiveness of that. I, I totally agree on something you said, Sandy, sparked something that I would love for a healthcare lawyer to start weighing in on is we want, I am a safe space. I think every patient I have ever met who sees me cries and I hold, I hold that part of, of what I do very close to me. It's, it's an honor to be someone that my patients open up to. And I know all of you on this call feel the same way because we, we are that place that they, they, I love hearing birth stories. I love it. Even it, it just gives me an insight into that person, into that experience. I feel like I'm there with them and I understand better what they have gone through. But what happens when the legal system is going to come for us or them through us? What happens to that? How do we continue to be a safe space where they can share their sexual trauma, their birth trauma, their birth history, their pregnancy history, their menstruation history, their sexual history, all of those really, really intimate things. How do we continue to be that for our patients? I think we've had to do this, but I've had to do this previously for in some very uh, in situations of incest in, for the most part, we need a trigger warning on this podcast. <laughs> um, but you know, you have an individual that is a minor or, or, or for some reason, not independent that is being abused in what is supposed to be their safe space. And then that person, the abuser can be like, oh, look, I'm helping you get better. Um, and they're actually not safe. So there's some things, and if the, the person you're treating is a minor, that adult has access to their records. And so I've worked in places, not, I don't know how to do it with an EMR, but I've worked in places where we have our chart that we write down the official record and sticky notes, which are the things that will not get put in the official record, but we need to have written down so people know it. And, and we've had to do that in situations where the 
the patient wasn't safe. We all knew the patient wasn't safe. It was being worked on to get them safe, but they were not yet safe. And you had to make sure there was nothing in their records that was going to make them more unsafe. Uh, I don't know how to do it in the EMR. If someone has a clever way to do that, that'd be great. Or we go back to EMR plus paper chart. Yeah, um, and even to, to add to your point, Abby, if we're looking now at possible um, you know, jurisdiction, you know, le legal jurisdiction or a subpoena of documentation, you know, after having intervened for someone who may have had to make a choice uh, that their state uh, did not condone. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 I'm completely, um, you know, on guard against that now. I, those are things that I'm thinking about now and thinking about, well, what would my profession do? Would we back you know, um, you know, efforts uh, on Capitol Hill to advocate for, you know, someone who who has lost their their autonomy or lost their ability to to at least have a safer procedure. And we've had to intervene in that way. You know, I, I think about that now and I that it makes me fearful that this is such a hot topic issue that, you know, we might not as an organization want to choose sides, but we as professionals on the ground as pelvic health therapists, I don't think that we have that luxury in turning someone away. Um, and so, so yeah, I think more conversations like this need to be had so that we can form a unified front of at least, you know, pelvic health specialists that can really help with the, the after effects of, of this. And I think a big barrier to that legal aspect of it is, you know, what is our legal responsibility and what happens if we don't do X, Y, Z is because a lot of the laws in a lot of these states, some of these trigger laws and other laws that are being passed, the rules seem to be a bit murky. They're not clear. And so I agree. I think the APTA or the section on pelvic health needs to come out with clear um, guidelines as to what we as healthcare professionals can and should do. But here's the other thing that I don't understand, and maybe someone else can. What about HIPAA? Isn't that a thing? Where did the HIPAA laws come in to protect the privacy between the provider and the patient? And I don't know the answer to that. I'm not a lawyer, but we have protection through HIPAA. Isn't that the point of a HIP of HIPAA laws? I don't know. You would, you would think so. But unfortunately, <laughs> one of the justices who shall not be named um, has, you know, you know, decided that abortion does not fall under HIPAA because it involves the life of another being. And so I can only state what has been stated or restate, but yes, th those are, th those are the very things that I'm afraid we're up against as professionals. Yeah, I think they're going to try to make us mandatory reporters for it. I think they're going to try to make all healthcare. We are, we are mandatory reporters for some things. The thing that scares for some me, things, yeah. The thing that bothers me about that is the we're I'm in Illinois right now. Illinois is a designated look. We're not we're not going to infringe on people's right to healthcare, um, which is great some of the laws and I've lost track. I was trying to keep track of how many have are voting on or have already voted on laws that um, would have civil pen penalties of providers from other states, regardless of the practice act 
of that provider to be able to have a civil lawsuit against that provider. Uh, so that's fun. And yeah. then we go back to a, a, what um, Abby, you had mentioned before we started recording about medicine that that is considered an abortifacient. I have a really hard time with that word. Um, but that is also used for other conditions that we see in our clinics for pain, for um, function and things like that. And, and then where is our role? Right, so does someone wanna talk about, be more specific on what those medications are and what they're for? Um, so that people listening are like, okay, well, what medications, you know? So do you wanna kind of go into maybe what those medications are, what they're for and how they tie back into our profession? Because, you know, a lot of people will say, well, this isn't our lane. So we're trying to do these podcasts so people understand it's very much within our lane. Well, I, I, yeah, it's just from a pharmacology standpoint, the, the, one of the probably most popular well-known drugs that's used for abortion is um, under the generic name of Cytotec or mesoprostol. And that's a drug that's not only, only used for abortion, but if um, an individual suffers a miscarriage, is used to um, help with uh, retained placenta and, and making sure that the uterus clears. Um, what other people don't know is it's also used for induction. So the same drug is used for three or four different uh, purposes. It's also used for postpartum hemorrhage. So mesoprostol or Cytotec is a drug as pelvic health therapists, we should be very familiar with. We should um, be familiar with it, not only you know, for you know, this, this topic, but it's also been a drug that's been linked with uh, the uterus uh, going into hyperstimulation. So actually putting someone at risk for bleeding too heavily. And all of this has a lot of implications on someone's mental health who suffered a miscarriage, who's gone through an abortion that maybe uh, was not safely performed, uh, which I have had um, very close experience with someone who's been given mesoprostol or Cytotec. It didn't take well. She continued bleeding through the weekend because she lived in a state where emergency physicians could opt out of knowing abortive medications. So as professionals, we do need to know abortive procedures so that we can recognize when someone has been through an unsafe situation. It is it is our oath as, med as medical professionals to know those things, not to necessarily have a stance on those things that will prevent us from providing uh, high quality and safe care. Another one of the medications is methotrexate and it's used to treat inflammatory bowel disease. And as public health specialists, we see people who um, have IBD, Crohn's and colitis, um, who have had surgery, who are in flare-ups, who are being treated like that, treated with that medication. And it is again used in, in abortions. Um, and when you're on that medication, you have to take pregnancy tests in order to still be able to get your prescription for that medication. Um, and as a person who I myself have inflammatory bowel disease and have been on that medication before, um, I can tell you that you don't go on those medications lightly. It is, you are counseled when you are of an age where you could possibly get pregnant and taking those medications. And it's very serious to take them. And you also have to get to a certain stage of very serious disease in order to take them. It's not the first line of defense. So if we start removing 
medications or they start to be red flagged on EMRs or org charts and we become mandatory reporters for seeing that medication, God forbid, on someone's, you know, they're, when they're telling us what type of medications they're taking, um, that there would be an inquiry into that for, for, for any reason is just, it's, it's horrifying. I mean, it's, we treat these patients and they trust us and we want them to trust us. But as we get farther and farther down this rabbit hole of, of going after providers, pharmacists, people who help give them information to go to a different state, I just, it is, like I said before, the breadth and the depth of this decision reverberates everywhere. And if, if PTs think that they are in orthopedic clinics, that they are somehow immune from it, you're absolutely not. And for those clinics who have taken on or encourage one of their one of their therapists to take on women's health because it's now a buzz issue, it's really cool. You are now going to see that in your clinic. And you know, like Rebecca was saying before, you know, any number of us who have really strong and long-term relationships with patients who are pregnant or in postpartum, I have intervened and sent patients to the hospital on the phone with them because they have uh, remnants of conception and they have a fever and someone's blowing them off and not letting them into the ED and sending them home. And we, we are seeing those patients. They have an ectopic, they're, they're bleeding. Is it normal? They're calling me. They're not calling their OB. They can't get their OB on the phone. They're texting me and saying, what should I do? And they have that trust with me. And what happens when they don't? and they're bleeding and they're not asking someone that question and they don't know where to go for help. And so I know I took this in a different direction than we were talking about pharmacology, but I just think that I have those patients whose lives I have saved by sending them to the emergency department because they are sick. They have an infection. They are bleeding. They have an ectopic. It is not normal. And I don't know what happens when they no longer have that trust with us, not, not because we're not trustworthy, but because they're scared. The heavy silence of all of us going, (laughs) you know, it's, it's not wrong. And I think the, like, what just keeps going through my head is just like, so what do we do? I mean, Karen, you mentioned like, it'd be great if somebody came out with a list of, of guidance for us. Um, and I just, that just won't happen. Um, because there's different laws in different states, different practice acts in different states. Um, and no one, you know, like you, even if you talk to a lawyer, they're going to say this would be the interpretation, but also as of yet, there's no like case law to give us any sort of, any sort of guidance. Um, so that was a lot of words to say it's, it's really hard. Um, I can tell you in Illinois, like two or three weeks ago, um, I'd be like, like, I'm happy. I feel like Illinois is a pretty safe space. Um, we have, we have, uh, elections for our governor this year. Uh, and I have never been so worried, so motivated to vote. Um, and, and so motivated to, to really make sure to talk to people about, it's not just like this this category or this category. It's like, we really need to take into consideration um, the, the ramifications of, 
of, of what this will do. I think there was a lot of this probably won't affect me a whole lot, but I think I'm guessing, I think a lot of us on this call, maybe I think all of us on all of us on this call have lived our lives with Roe v. Wade. Um, and, and as all of this was coming up and just thinking about how it impacts so many people um, and how our healthcare system is already doing not a good job of taking care of so many people. The fact that we would um, do this with no, no scientific background, no support scientifically. Um, like I pulled up the, the ACOG statement and, um, and they condemned this devastating decision. And I really, I was like, it gave me, gave me goosebumps. Um, and this was referred to in our, um, our association's um, statement. And it, it makes me sad that we didn't condemn it. Um, I hope that's not too political, that I'm really sad that we didn't take a, a, a stronger stance to say, this is not good healthcare and, and we, we need to do more. Um, Again, and that's like, again, so many words to, to say, we're gonna have to make up our own minds. We're gonna have to know our rules, our laws and what we're willing to do um, and go through so that we can provide the care that we know our patients deserve. And that's gonna be really hard because, you know, if I talk to someone and if I call Rebecca in Washington state, she's gonna have something different than if I talk to Abby in New York. Um, and, you know, it, so it'll be, it'll be really hard even to find that support. Um, not that support, there's going to be so much support, I think, from this community, but that knowledge and that, that confidence, um, we're, we, we have to pull together. So we have to pull together with all the other providers, but also we're going to have to sit down and figure this out too. The clarity. So do you think a, a practical step forward would be each state to get, get like a, every state come up with a thing so pelvic health therapists in that state come up with what seems to work for them get a lovely healthcare lawyer to to work with them with it and then we could have a clearinghouse of sorts of all of the state statements i don't know that that needs to go through a particular organization i um, i know that they're in the field of physical therapy two-thirds of pts aren't members um, and we need this information to be out there for every single person so that they know. That will have to be grassroots. There's, I, I don't think that there's going to be widespread um, association support from anywhere. Um, but that being said, I think it's a great idea. What are we gonna do about it? On issues that are too divisive, you're absolutely right. The individual, um, entities are going to have to take this on and just put those resources out to therapists who need them, you know, need the legal uh, support, um, you know, need the, need the know-how and how to circumvent issues in their states. And, um, you know, like I said before, even how to just provide that emotional support that's going to be needed for their, their, their patients. So, um, and that's okay. If, if, if the organizations that we're part of are not willing to take a heavy stance um, you know, even like last year, if you're not willing to take a heavy stance on an issue where someone feels their autonomy and their choice is being threatened, then it's okay. We'll, we'll take it from here. But, you know, that's, that's really where uh, these grassroots efforts uh, come from and abound 
because there are a group of individuals who are willing to say, no, this is wrong. And I'm going to do something about uh, this so that our future generations don't have to suffer. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're, we're really looking at the criminalization of healthcare. That is not healthcare. And we also know who this criminalization of healthcare is going to affect the most. And it's going to affect poor, marginalized people of color. It is not going to affect the wealthy white folks in any state. They'll be fine. So how do we as physical therapists deal with that? How do we how do we get the trust of those communities who already don't trust healthcare? So now they're going to stay away even more. We already have the highest mortality, maternity mortality rates in the developed world. I can only imagine that will get worse because people, as we've all heard today, are going to be afraid to seek healthcare. So where, where do we go from here as healthcare providers? I, uh, Karen, you're speaking something that's very near and dear to my heart. So I have to just, you have to take this um, on. I am very um, adamant that we can no longer choose to stay in our lane. We do not have that luxury. And I, as a, a black female, you know, physical therapist, I don't have the luxury to ignore that because of the color of my skin and not my doctorate degree, not my board certification in women's health, um, uh, you know, not my, not my faculty position. I, when I walk into a hospital and I either choose to give birth or have a procedure, I will be judged by none other than the color of my skin. That is what the data is telling me, is that I am three times likely to have a very severe outcome um, if I were to have a pregnancy that uh, did not um, go as planned or, or you know, choose a procedure um, you know, that affects the rest of my function and my health. And so given the, the data on this, you're absolutely right. There, there's going to be very specific populations that are going to uh, receive the most blowback from this. And as a pelvic health therapist, I had to go into the hospital to find them because I knew that people of color and of marginalized uh, backgrounds were not going to find me in my clinic. And we're not going to pay necessarily private uh, pay services to, to, to uh, receive that care but I needed to go where they were most likely to be. And that was the hospital setting or in their home. And so again, as a, a field of a very um, dispersed and, and, and you know, not very many of us at all, we're going to have to pivot into these areas that we were not necessarily comfortable in being if we're going to address um, the populations that are gonna be most affected by the decisions our lawmakers are making for our bodies. You know, uh, there's something that I think about often when I hear this type of conversation come up and in and, and, and sexual health and in, in, um, whenever I am speaking with one of my patients and talking about their menstruation history and, and them not knowing how their body works from such a young age is I just wonder if we should be offering programs for young people, like very young pre-menstruation uh, you know, people with uteruses and their parents and, and grandparents online. Online. and online, 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 little anonymous, 
Yep. Online anonymous. You don't have to pay for. It's just there. yes. Yes. It's it's just um, you know Andrew Huberman talks a lot about having you know direct free content that's scientific that's factual and I think about that a lot and I think to my mind where I go with this because I do think about the lifespan of a person is that creating something that someone can access anonymously at any age and then maybe creating something where it's offered at a school you know it's it's menstruation health and it doesn't have to be under the guise of uh you know this happened with Roe v. Wade, but this, it could be menstruation health. What is a person who menstruating? What can you expect? What, you know, and, and going through the lifespan with them, but offering them, you know, I think, I think about this with my own children as our pediatrician always asks the question at the visit, who is allowed to see under your clothes? Who is allowed to touch you? And it's like, you, <laughs> and my, I have a five-year-old, so it's mom when, when, when I go number two, mom or dad, when I go number two, and that's it. And, and, you know, I think about that and I think about how we can educate young people on a variety of things within this topic and kind of include other stuff too. That's normal, not normal, depending on their age. Absolutely. There was what I was excited about in pelvic health before this was uh, people like Frank Tu, a physician and his PhD students um, and postdocs are working on a series of research about how if we identify young girls that are starting their period and having painful periods, treat them and educate them then that they will not go on to have as much pelvic pain conditions and issues in the future. So we look at the early childhood events kind of thing, but also period pain. And how exciting would it be if we could get education to young girls about just how their bodies work and to know that just because all your aunties have horrible periods doesn't mean that you're stuck with it. It's like maybe they just didn't know. Let's help you out. And constipation information and those basic health self-care for preventative of problems. So I was super excited about all that. And now it's like, oof, now we have to do it because in that we can do well, pieces of information so people have knowledge about their body that's going to be a little bit of armor for them um, that they're going to need and free and available and short and, um, you know, slide it past all the YouTube sensors. This is, this, this is doable, but it's going to take time, money, doing, but we can do it. Well, it sounds like ladies, we've got a lot of work to do. One other thing I wanted to touch upon, and we've said this a couple of times, but I think it's worth repeating again and again and again, and that's that expanding out to other providers. So it's expanding out, as Rebecca said, expanding out to our colleagues in acute care, meaning you can see someone right after a procedure, right after a birth, right after a C-section, and, and sadly, as we were saying, I think we, they may start seeing more women, I'm not going to even say children under the age of 18 in these positions of forced birth on a skeletally immature body. So the only place to reach these 
children would be maybe in that acute care setting. How, what does the profession need to do in order to make that happen and not, not shy away from it, but give them the information that they need moving forward? I was just going to say that I've given birth in hospital twice. Not at any time was I offered a physical therapist or did a physical therapist come by? And I am in New York City. I gave birth in New York City, planned cesareans because of my illnesses and nobody came by. I did get lactation, um, nurses, any manner of people who were seeing me, I was on their service, but that has been something that we needed anyway. We need to have a public health physio on the laborer and delivery and on the maternity floors who is coming by educating uh, as to what they can start with, what they can expect, when can they have an exam if they want to have one, who is a trusted provider for them to have one. And we need to get the hospitals to expand acute care physical therapy to labor and delivery and, and the maternity floors um, as, as a routine. It's not something you should have to call for. It should be routine clearance for discharge. The same way you have to watch the shaking baby video to get discharged. I'm Abby. older than all of you. I didn't have it either, <laughs> but the um, shaking baby video is not something that even existed back in the day. Uh, but that makes sense. I mean, I once upon a time was a burn therapist and I was on call at a regional trauma center. And, you know, the, it's like you're needed, your, beep, your pager goes off because that's how long ago it was. Um, and you just came in, did your thing, went back home, went back to bed. There is no reason other than lack of will that PTs couldn't be doing that right now. I'm now of the opinion where it's unethical to not offer physical or occupational therapy within 24 or to 48 hours of someone who had no idea, who did not have a planned uh, delivery the way they expected it, who has now um, in, 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 um, a massively uh, a long road to recovery um, after a major abdominal surgery. I, I'm now of the opinion that is, is unethical for our medical systems to not offer that those rehabilitative services. And I've treated individuals who had a cesarean section but suffered a stillbirth. So the very thought of not providing services to someone who has any kind of procedure uh, that's affecting, you know, their, their, their not only their pelvic health, but their mental function. Uh, that to me is now uh, given, you know, these, these, this recent decision on overturning Roe v. Wade is, is now, now or never, uh, you know, either we're going to now pivot again as public health therapists and start training our acute care colleagues, as we did with our orthopedic colleagues, as we've done with, you know, our neurology colleagues, whatever we've had to do as public health therapists to bring attention to half of the population, you know, who, who um, are undergoing procedures and they're not being informed on how to um, recover, we will have to start educating and, and kind of um, really grow beyond just the clinics and beyond what we can do in our, commu our community, but we are going to have to start educating 
our other colleagues in these other settings. We don't have a choice. We know too much, but we can't be everywhere. Not all of us can be in the hospital setting. We're going to have to train the individuals who are used to seeing anything that walks through the door and tell them, get, get over to the obstetric unit. Okay, there's someone there waiting for you. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, when I think back, I, I remember as a student working in acute care and how we had someone who was dedicated to the ICU. We had someone dedicated to the medical floor. We had somebody who was dedicated to the ortho floor. And most of the time they had their OCS, their, um, their, uh, the one for, for, for um, ICU care, the one for neuro care, or they had a specialty. And I think it is just remnants of the bygone era of it's natural, your body will heal kind of BS from the past. It's, it's just remnants of that. And it's just, we don't need the APTA to give us permission to do this. This is internal. This is, I'm going into a hospital and I'm presenting you with a program. And here is what this, what you can build this visit for. Here's the ICD-10 code for this visit. Here is here is uh, here are two people who are going to give, um, you know, one seminar to all of your PTOTs to, you know, so that you are aware of what the possible complications and, and when to refer out and that kind of thing. And then here are two therapists who are acute care therapists who are going to also float to the maternity floor, one of them every day, so that we can hit the, we can get to these patients at that point. And that is just, that's just people who present a program, who have an idea, who get it in front of the board. That's that. It is not permission from anybody else to do it. And, you know, it, it really, it fires me up to, to create a world in which, you know, when you know people who are the heads of departments and chairs and, you know, on the boards of directors, um, you know, being in big cities or small cities, when you know those people, you know, you can, your passion can fire them up. And if you can fire people up and you can advocate for your patients and you can, and that can spread, you can make that happen. And this is, you know, I feel radicalized by this. I mean, I'm burning my bra all over the place with this kind of thing. And I just feel like if we can, if we can get to young people, and if we can get to day zero of delivery, day one post-delivery or post-trauma, then, then maybe we can make a dent. Maybe we, can, maybe we can try. Maybe we can really make a go of this for these people because like I keep feeling and saying, I, we are not prepared for the volume. If individuals are going to be forced to carry a pregnancy that they may not want to term because it's affecting their health, we're going to have to be prepared for this. Again, this is not an option really for us as public health therapists because we, we know what's down the road. We've seen mothers who have, you know, or individuals who have suffered strokes or preeclampsia or seizures or, you know, um, honestly, long-term health issues because of what pregnancies have done to their body. And now if they want the choice to say, you know, I'm not ready, they don't have it anymore. So we really don't have a choice. Um, we have to start expanding our services into these other settings, you know, making our neurologic clinical specialists in the hospital 
see people before they have a stroke, before they have a seizure, actually provide services that can help someone monitor their own signs and symptoms after they've had now a procedure or, or, or given birth or even had you know, a, a stillbirth, unfortunately, because the doctor had to decide, well, yes, now we will perform the abortion because, you know, your health is like on the cliff. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're going to be seeing these and we just have to prepare. And if it's not our organizations that are laying the foundations, we will. We'll take we it from to, here. We need to reach out across so many barriers, like athletic trainers. They're going to see the young girls. They're going to see their track stars, but it's not red. It's pregnancy. And it could be a very short-lived traumatic pregnancy in um, girls that are just not developed. They're developed enough to get pregnant. They're not developed enough to carry a healthy baby to term. Um, God, it just makes me like, <laughs> but Rebecca's right. It's, we don't get to have an opinion on the right or wrongness of this. We have a problem ahead of us now that, that is happening already as we speak. Um, that people are going to need help. I love that we have more technology than my grandma did when she was fighting this battle. And we have YouTube and we have podcasts and we have ways to get information out. Um, but we need to use every single one of them. And our, our sports colleagues, our athletic trainer colleagues, they need to know the signs um, because they may be the ones that see it first. Yeah. And Sarah, as being the most recent new mother here, what kind of care did you get when you were in the hospital? I was sitting here thinking about that. And I mean, I, I will say that the, the, the care I had while I was there, um, that I had an uncomplicated delivery in spite of a very large baby. Um, and um, I was fortunate enough to, to leave the hospital without needing additional help but I wasn't offered physio. Um, nobody really, they're just really curious to make sure you're peeing enough. Um, and that's about it if you're the mom. Um, and, and my six week visit was actually telehealth. And that was the last time I had contact with a healthcare professional regarding my own health. Um, so so it, it is minimal, um, even if you're a very fortunate white woman in a large metropolitan area. Um, and, but I, am working now further North and, and with a pro bono cl clinic and in an area where, um, I, we, we do a lot of work with communities of color and I'm, I'm like, I honestly don't even know the hospitals up here yet. Um, but, but I'm gonna, I have so many post-it notes, um, of things that are going to start happening <laughs> and, um, start inquiring because. Uh, Rebecca, like we need to get into the hospitals. Like if, if I could do that and honestly, up until now, like my world at Entropy was, and pre this decision was that there's so many people out there who need help with pelvic issues in general, like we can do this forever. And we set our clinic up so that people who weren't doing well in the traditional healthcare system could find us and afford us. Um, uh, at least some people could, I realized that it wasn't encompassing everybody who could possibly need help, but we were doing, trying to figure out another way. Um, and, um, so again, like, like, again, the, the, the offer of assistance I got was minimal, but also I didn't need 
much. Um, and I was in a position where also I knew I could, I, I could ask for it if I wanted it and I could probably get it if I needed it. And, and I'm just thinking about, um, again, some of the communities I'm interacting with now um, in some of my other roles and responsibilities. And I, I cannot wait to take a look and see how can we get in there? How can we be on that floor? How can we, um, what, what can we make, make happen? Like, cause it needs to happen. These are these, this is the place where I'm scared to start seeing the stats. Um, Wouldn't it be amazing if you can get the student clinic part of that somehow, somehow and get, you know, young, young, that's that's bias, but younger, most younger, but, but like but the physicians, the, the, in training, the PTs in training, the PAs, the, you know, and get like Rebecca had said, let's get, let's get the team up to speed here because there aren't enough pelvic health therapists already and dear heavens we need we need to get everybody caught up well, and, and there's so much I, I will tell you that being around student healthcare provider future healthcare providers is really energizing and also really interesting um i mean the ideas they come up with and the and the connections they make and 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 the proposals they make are just amazing. Um, but two things that I've noticed that I think probably we run into in the real world, real world outside of school world as well is one, the, but if being able to have enough people and enough support to keep it sustainable. So you have this idea, you have the proposal, you made the proposal, how are we going to keep it going and finding the funding or the energy or the volunteers to keep it going? Um, things ebb and flow. You get a great proposal. You're like, yes. And then I literally today was like, I wonder what's up with that one? Because it was an idea for a clinic to help. Um, it was basically for trans people who um, are transitioning and might not have the support that they need. Um, uh, and also I was reached, they, they come up with the idea for a women's health clinic. And I'm going to reach out to them now because this, again, this decision changes that because it is a pro bono clinic um, that they would like to set this up in. And before it was going to be much more, um, more wellness. And, and now it, it could turn out to be essential healthcare. Um, so that's one thing. But then the other thing is still the education that in school, we're not taught about what everyone else can do. Um, and, and I think, again, figuring out a way to make sure that future physicians really know what physical therapists have to offer, especially in this space. Most people know that if they're their shoulder, their rotator cuff repair, they should send them to PT. But really, we need to get in with the ob gynees. We need to get in with the pediatricians. And I don't want to say unfortunately, but in this regard, unfortunately, we're going to have to really make sure that they know what we're doing. And Again, I'm already kind of trying to think like, how can we make this just part of how we do healthcare? Sarah, I, I think I'm following in your footsteps by going into um, education and by, by being a part of our doctor of physical therapy programs. You know, I especially chose the program in Washington state, not because, you know, uh, of, of just um, 
the 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 opportunity to teach doctors um, or or incoming doctors, but it was also an opportunity to teach doctors of osteopathic medicine and, and occupational ther therapists. Um, it, it was um, you know very intimate program and opportunity to make pelvic health or women's health or you know reproductive health a part of cardiopulmonary content, a part of neurology content, a part of um, our foundations, a part of musculoskeletal and not a special um, elective course that we, we get two days of training on. I had the opportunity to literally insert our care, our specialized and unique care in every aspect of uh, the curriculum as it should be, because we are dealing with, um, you know, more or less issues that every therapists, generalists, or specialists should be equipped to handle. So in the wake of Roe v. Wade, to me, this is an opportunity unlike any other for pelvic health therapists to really get into these educational spaces where incoming doctors are, uh, uh, you know, uh, MDs or PA programs or NP programs or our, our therapy practices and start where students are most riled up and, and, and having those ideas so that they can go out and become each one of us you know, go into hospitals and say no to obstetric units being ignored, uh, go into hospitals and give in services to physicians. You know, we need to create more innovators in our field and education is the way to do that. I just wrote down check Indiana and Ohio, and then I wrote border clinics because, because Illinois is a, it's like a, not a prohibition state. Um, I'm having so many flashbacks <laughs> because Illinois is is currently dedicated to maintaining healthcare access for everyone. Um, we have cities that are on the border, and I thought of that when you were talking, Sarah, because you're up next to Wisconsin now. <laughs> and um, but we have we have the southern part of the state and the western part of the state, and those those border towns are going to have a higher influx than I will see in Chicago, maybe, but I would anticipate that they would. You know, and again, this is where laws are murky. Every state is different. It's, I mean, it's a shit show uh, for lack of better way of putting it. I don't think there's any other way to put it at this point, because that's kind of what, what we're dealing with, because no one's prepared, period. So as we wrap things up, I'll go around to each of you and just kind of what do you want the listeners to take away? Go ahead, Sandy. Uh, this, is, this is frustrating and new and we're not gonna abandon you. We're gonna figure it out and be there to help. I would say that our clinics are still safe. It is still a safe place for you to open up and tell us what you wouldn't tell anybody else. It's still safe with us. And we still have you as an entire person with all of your history. We are still treating you based on what you are dealing with and not, we will not be dictated by anybody else. Our care won't be mandated or dictated by anybody. Sarah, go ahead. Uh, what I would say is I, I would echo you are safe. Um, if you need help, there is help. And I'm sorry that, um, 
that this just made it harder than it already was. And I and I would say to healthcare providers, please let remember let us remember why we're doing what we're doing. Um, and you know, we do need to stand up. We do need to continue to provide the best care for our patients. Because um, to be honest, I, I've been thinking like I, I think. It's a legal question. It's a professional question, but ultimately, if we can't give the best care possible, I'm not sure I should do this. Go ahead, Rebecca. For our healthcare providers, in the wake of Roe v. Wade being overturned, wherever we are, you know, as an organization or on our stance, if we believed in the autonomy of an individual to know all of the information before making a decision then we still believe in the autonomy of an individual to know all of the information that um, is best for their body. And that is the oath, that's the, that's, the, um, that's the promise that we've made as professionals to people that we're serving. And to the people that we're serving, to those who are, that are listening to this, you have safe spaces with providers that you trust and we're going to continue to educate one another our field, and also you. We're going to put together resources that really bring this education to your families so that you don't have to feel like you're in the dark and you're alone. This is not something that is per individual or per person. This affects everyone. And we're dedicated to advocating for you. Perfect. And on that, we will wrap things up. Thank you, ladies, so much. Uh, for a really candid and robust discussion. I feel like there are lots to do. I think we've got some, some great ideas here and perhaps with some help and some grassroots movements, we can turn them into a reality. So thank you to Rebecca, to Sarah, to Abby, and to Sandy for taking the time out of your schedules because I know we're all busy um, to talk about this very important topic. So thank you all so, so much. And everyone, thanks so much uh, for listening. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.